This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the urate moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Eric McNulty, and welcome to Leader ReadyCast. People expect leaders to make decisions, and for crisis leaders in particular, this can be challenging because the stakes are high, there'll be gaps in knowledge, and the situation is often evolving quickly. You're never quite sure of what's happening. It's really difficult to get your arms around it. So how then do you equip yourself to make the tough calls and the difficult choices you're going to confront? Well, in this episode of Leader ReadyCast, we're going to turn to history to gain forward-looking insight. My guest today is Brad Borkin. He has done deep research on making decisions in extreme circumstances. He studied numerous expeditions to Antarctica and other settings where leaders' choices made the difference between success and failure, and in some cases, life and death. There's a lot to be gleaned from the historical record and giving some context to how decisions get made and then being able to bring that knowledge forward so you can use it right now. Brad is a fellow of the Royal Geographic Society and co-author of When Your Life Depends on It, Extreme Decision-Making Lessons from the Antarctic and and Audacious Goals, Remarkable Results, How an Explorer, an Engineer, and a Statesman Shaped Our Modern World. He also has a graduate degree in Decision Sciences from the University of Pennsylvania. Brad, welcome to Leader ReadyCast. Hi, Eric. It's great to be on your show. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Really happy to have you here today. Now... I'm fascinated with decision sciences, and although I've never gotten a degree in it, I'm just sort of an amateur there, but I'm really interested to learn about how you got interested in how people make decisions, you know, and what are one or two of the things you've learned along the way that have surprised you about that process? Well, my, my background has always been, in, came from an interest in advertising, and why do people make the decisions they do based on the ads they see, based on the, the events that happen around them? And I just from a young age, I was always fascinated by ads and, and the, the things that drove us to do everything from buying ice cream to, to peanut butter to whatever. And it was thinking about that and thinking about why do people build their relationships they do and, and why do businesses make the decisions that they do is what led me into decision sciences. And it was from there that I also had this incredible interest in Antarctica and the early explorers. And that's what brought me to writing books about, about explorers and exploration and decision-making. So it's, it's a combination of all those things. And so we, we've learned a lot along the years about why we buy ice cream and why we choose the cars we choose and things like that. So as, as you've studied it deeply, what about that have you sort of what have been your your aha moment there what have been the surprises you've encountered along the way well in looking at the antarctic explorers it there were so many aha moments it was it was almost shocking one of them was that they never not one of the early antarctic explorers ever achieved their primary goal and yet they all had various degrees of success and it was that was one of the big revelations was why were they successful if they didn't achieve their goals? Because in business school and in, in, in life, we're taught be goal driven, achieve your goals from your goals will come success. And, and it's, it's a, a, a cycle that's 
goals drive success, success drives goals. Uh, and that wasn't the case for them. One of the other things that surprised us in doing the research, I co-wrote the books with David Herzl, who's a historian based on the West Coast and I'm based in London, is that the explorers faced incredible obstacles. They faced setbacks, they faced obstacles, and they persevered through. And always there was another obstacle, always there was another setback. And, and it just was seemed like a, a never-ending need to persevere and then face the next challenge, you know, mm -hmm. falling in a crevasse, whatever, was, you know, have, getting scurvy, uh, all the different challenges that they had. And, and there was a third thing as well, which was that they all came to it with a mindset of to never stop achieving. That once they achieved one thing, once they set some Antarctic record or they, 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 they did something, they were always off onto the next adventure. And I thought that was quite a remarkable discovery in a sense that people who seem to be extremely successful in this area do so all throughout their entire life. And they almost literally die in the saddle, not at a young age, but in old age. And they're still in older age doing something that is in the exploration adventuring field. And, you know, as I read the books, then they are, they're both fascinating reads. I really enjoyed them. Um, you know, the, these are times that are quite different than our own. You know, people going down to the Arctic with uh, reindeer sleeping bags. No, there's no polar tech. There's no, uh, you know, of all of our modern high-tech fabrics and insulations and such. Uh, and the modes of transportation are different. The Even the, although it's still capitalism, it's a, it's a different version of it than we practice right today, I think, in, in many ways. So, you know, you go deep into this period that roughly from the early years of the 19th century to the early years of the 20th, which was a, one of the modern eras of amazing discovery and a lot of exploration. Why do you find that what happened then is so relevant now? Well, it's actually, there's a lot of parallels to that era and our era. I mean, they were both uh, technologically advanced. I mean, yes, we're, you know, we're, we're in the internet era, in the, the artificial intelligence era and, and, and that, but th their era was just as revolutionary. So they were exploring the world. They were, you know, at, in our second book, we're talking about Isambard Kingdom Brunel, who, who pioneered the, the way railways are that we see today, how tunnels, tunnels under rivers, we get into the aspects of the Panama Canal and uh, the work that Theodore Roosevelt did in building the, the uh, legis creating legislation to protect land at, at a vast scale. This was uh, an era of complete change. There was, there was a lot of forces at play, uh, much like we have today. I mean, you had the press be, you know, being very attentive to things, everything from exploration to uh, the work that engineers and, and statesmen were doing at the time, uh, things were changing very rapidly. Now here, now maybe they're not changing as rapidly as they are right now, but they were changing rapidly. People were, were politically aware, people were, uh, and especially when you get into the early 1900s, I think that you went from a society that was uh, based on animals, where you had basically transportation was by horses or horse and carriage and by uh, you, you know, heating things or, or using whale oil for lading and heating to moving to, as you get into the early 1900s, to a, a society that we very much would see like we have today, which you start moving towards cars and telephones and, and electricity and, and things like that. And so they were, 
there's a lot of parallels in the sense that society was moving fast and decision-making was critical to how that society was going to move in that direction. And you had a lot of setbacks. I mean, you, you had the, the lead up to, to World War I, which was definitely the, the, the big transformational era of, of the world. So it's, there were a lot of parallels. I, I do see that and the way you explained it, it makes perfect sense because we went, you, know, you say from, from an animal powered society to more of an industrial society. And now we've gone from industrial to post-industrial and digital, everything is transforming yet again. And so we are in a period of a lot of change right now, a lot of turbulence and certainly the COVID we've been going through is part of that, climate change is part of that, lots of turbulence, lots of forces of disruption out there. So what, what about the, the ways that the people you studied were able to make decisions amidst all that uncertainty? Um, how, what, what can you pull forward that can guide the leaders who are listening today facing uh, similarly daunting circumstances? Well, one of the things that, that the early explorers faced was how they could make decisions when no one else had been in their situation. And there was no, they, they had no communication. So there was no way they could call anyone for a support. And one of the taglines in our book is there's no, the only communication was as far as you can shout that they had no communication back to any sort of base camp. They had no communication back to civilization. They really had to wing it and use their best judgment. And one of the, the outcomes of that, one of the, the lessons that we bring into the book that we comes out of the book is meeting every decision head on. That's what they're very good at. They're exceptionally good at saying, we've got a decision point and we're gonna make a decision and there's not gonna be a lot of analysis or, or procrastination. You know, if, if we've, we're in a crevasse field and we've got to get ourselves out, you can't spend a lot of time blaming each other or the leader and why we're in this crevasse field uh, why we're in this dangerous situation. You just got to be like, we're going to set one foot forward after the next and, and try to choose the best path forward. And, and in some cases they did fall into a crevasse, sometimes with deadly consequences, sometimes not, but they met decisions head on. They made decisions quickly. And one of the things, one of the traits that they had was they knew how to make the best of a bad situation. And I think that was quite key that they knew they couldn't make perfect decisions, just like we can't do today, no matter how much computer technology. And I worked in the high tech industry for my entire career, uh, working for the big software companies that no matter how much technology we throw at something, we can never make absolutely perfect decisions. Uh, I was listening to a podcast this morning about the pandemic and someone was saying, you know, when we were making plans in 2019, no one was predicting what was going to happen in 2020. And so even with the best computers we have in the world today, we couldn't have predicted that. The same with the early Antarctic explorers. They, can't, they couldn't have predicted what was going to happen to them at any step of the way. And yet at the same time, they knew they were resourceful enough to say, well, we can make the best of bad decision making. And that gave them a resilience to keep going, that, that they, they had it within their power to, to recover from seemingly terrible decisions. And there were some seriously terrible decisions that are written about in the book. Um, 
And, and that's a really a couple of really good points you make there. One of uh, I say, of, you you have to make a decision, so make a decision, because uh, we do we do so often see people get stuck in uh, paralysis by analysis, and they they because they want to make that perfect decision, they keep delaying making the actual decision. I think what you note, noted about realizing your decisions are not going to be perfect. Um, and, and that's okay, you still have to make them. And then you have to be ready for the consequences. And I think one of the things I, I took away from, from reading the books was they, you know, when they made a decision that didn't work out the way they planned, they didn't obsess over it. They just said, okay, that didn't work. Here's the situation, what do we do now? And they made the next decision. Uh, and they were able to sort of, you know, iterate their way forward. In some cases, they didn't have a, cho they didn't have a choice. They had, it, was, it, was, it was keep moving or die. Um, but I think that ability to to realize that, you know, because the decision didn't work out the way you wanted it to, uh, doesn't mean that you you can't make a good decision next time. You can learn from it, but that it's uh, it's a process of continuing to move forward. That's that's right. And I mean, in, in those conditions, it may have been just too cold to not move <laughs> not move forward. But at the same time, it would have been very easy for a group of men, in this case, it was all men who were the early explorers, that to blame each other. And this concept of just accepting, this is where we are today, and we're the, the masters of our fate today, and whatever happened in the past, we cannot change. And for that reason, they were able to avoid this, what was very divisive in, I mean, you saw this in, in exploration, expeditions to the Arctic, expeditions elsewhere in the world did fall apart because of blame and because of, of people of bad leadership and, and bad teamwork. But in the Antarctic in the early 1900s, and that's what makes the era, era so fascinating, is it didn't happen. And it didn't happen because they were very goal-driven, even though they never achieved their primary goal, they were very goal-driven. Everyone on the team knew what the goals were, and everyone worked towards those goals and bought into those goals. And it was, it was, the goals were simple. They were well-defined. They were clear. They, uh, their survival depended upon working with each other. So somehow they had to overcome personality issues, frustrations. They were a diverse group. And this was quite interesting. They were all white men, right? So maybe not diversity in the sense that we think about today, but they're from all different classes of people. There was people from very wealthy families, from poor families. They were from different countries. In most cases, they were, they were either Irish, British, Norwegian, or Australian. Uh, and uh, some were military people, and some were not military people, and some were scientists. So you had this very diverse group of people that uh, were brought together, and, and they had to figure out working to, how to work together for their own survival, but also not just for survival. It was really for achievement. It was for achieving the South Pole. It was for doing the, the science of the geology, the uh, zoology, the measuring currents, measuring temperatures, measuring, they, were, they were measuring a whole slew of material that, that, uh, and, and gathering information that even today is used for climate change analysis. So it's so information that they get, were gathering in the early 1900s becomes the baseline for what we're studying for climate change today. So it was, it was a, re a remarkable set of expeditions and a remarkable period in history. 
And I think that point of of knowing the goal as being something larger than yourself and larger larger even than the you know the brand name leader quote unquote who was uh, or who was uh, at the head of the expedition. I think we we know names like Shackleton and Scott and Roosevelt and Brunel. Um, but that the goals were even, were even larger than them. So you weren't just following the egocentric leader, uh, but, but trying to achieve something greater. And, and the other, one of the other points I found really interesting in the book was you make, you make uh, or you take the time to draw the importance of what you call the deputy leader, that person who's not the name we know, if it's sort of dig into the history to find that person's name, but who are critically important to the overall success of the expedition or the, or the uh, undertaking, Tell us more about the deputy leader, why you think that person is so important. Well, this was one of our most remarkable finds. And in the early Antarctic expeditions, they were, everything was done in teams and they were remarkably successful with teams. So almost no one ever went off on their own doing something, whether it was a small scientific study of measuring temperatures and wind, or whether it was um, uh, photography, journeys out to take take incredible photographs or whether it was with other other things it was everything was done in teams and sometimes there are large teams of 10 people or 12 people and other times there were small teams of two or three people in in the main expedition so you've got scott's expedition scott captain scott ran two expeditions um, shackleton ran two expeditions amundsen ran one expedition and douglas mawson ran one expedition so those were where we're studying six expeditions and what was striking was Captain Scott, his second in command for the entire expedition was Edward Wilson, who was a, a medical doctor. He was a, a scientist. He was an artist. He, had, he was like a real Renaissance man. Uh, and for Shackleton, his second in command was a guy named Frank Wild, who was a uh, uh, Frank Wild was actually a, a man who was quite small in stature. So it wasn't about sec- being a second command was both a position in a sense. It was also a uh, a mindset. It was you were the helper to the uh, expedition leader to Scott or Shackleton, but you were often the one that the other men went to when they had a complaint. They didn't. You couldn't necessarily complain to Scott or Shackleton about some grievance, but you could take it to, to Frank Wilde or you take it to Edward Wilson and like say, "I've got this issue with this other guy," and 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 they'd be able to sort out at a slightly lower level in a sense. So it was leaving the expedition leader, or as they called Shackleton, the boss, leaving the boss to do the big critical decisions and taking away all of the smaller interpersonal issues. And I think that worked very well when you're looking at the whole expedition, but when you're looking at the smaller teams, even teams of two or three, even teams of, of three or more people, there was a, either a set second in command or there was a de facto second in command. And again, it wasn't about, wasn't about stature. It wasn't about physical size. It was about someone who just seemed to be able to have the wherewithal to, to uh, make decisions or get out of situations. Because sometimes on the ice, decisions need to be made very quickly and you didn't necessarily have the leader right there. You, you might be separated by a number of, in some cases, they were pulling two sledges. So using the British words sledge, they didn't call them sleds, sledges filled with supplies. And you've got two small teams pulling sledges where the leader's going to be on one side. You may not have time to talk to them, to ask them questions again, because no communication except as far as you can shout. 
and Antarctic winds can be like 100 miles an hour or more. So you just may not hear anyone. So you've got to have the second in command make decisions. And there are these poignant stories of, um, especially with Shackleton's expedition called the Endurance Expedition, where the, his ship got crushed in the ice and they end up with these 28 men and they're on Elephant Island and Shackleton takes five of them and they sail off in this small lifeboat to get rescue and leaving 22 men. And the 22 men, Frank Wilde was the leader. But what was interesting about his leadership style was while well, Shackleton was sailing 800 miles across the roughest seas in the world in a 23-foot sailboat there to get rescue and with likelihood being pretty unlikely that he'd actually succeed in that. Frank Wells back there with the 20, with the, well, it was 22 men, but Frank was one of them. So there's 21 men and under Frank's leadership, but he, every day he'd, he gave him instruction. He said, uh, they're living under two upturned lifeboats and they had their sleeping bags and things. And he, every morning he'd say, lash up and stow, the boss may come today. And so his instruction that was basically saying, roll up your sleeping bags, get ready for the day. And in a way, his instruction was, I'm not the boss. The boss is Shackleton and one, and he's going to come back and be ready and be prepared to be the, the, you know, alive and, you know, uh, uh, don't descend into gloom and doom, focus on survival and being the, the best man that you can be for when Shackleton returns. It's just a remarkable survival story. And they all do survive. It's just it's one of the most incredible survival stories in Shackleton's boat journey is probably the most incredible boat journey ever undertaken in the history of the, of the world. So it's uh, just this, this remarkable set of circumstances all depend upon the second in command leading the way. It's, uh, it's they're just remarkable stories. And it's a great lesson for, for modern leadership and modern business. Yeah, and as I hear you talking, I hear you know several things that we in in today's terms talk about. Uh, sounds like that number two has got a high degree of emotional intelligence. Um, there's a lot of a real trust-based relationship between the boss and the number two, uh, so that you can they have confidence in each other. Um, and and uh, among the the, the boss the boss the willingness to to delegate some authority. And, and realize somebody else is going to have to make some decisions and, and not try to do everything himself. And so I think it translates really nicely into what we, you know, we now spend a lot of time writing about writing articles about they figured out on, on the ice a uh, hundred and hundred and some odd years ago. Yes. And I think this, it's, I think this era, era is, this area is really key to whether you're dealing with, with disaster relief or dealing with, with other things like that you talk about in your own book in, in your it, that this concept that you you're it but you've got to rely on this this wider team and there's got to be, and there is a hierarchy in that team they, they were not consensus leaders i mean shackleton and scott and amundsen and mawson were not leading by taking a poll from their men and saying what should we do but they were they did have trusted advisors and they did rely heavily on the second command they did expect people to be resourceful they did expect that there was there was almost a concept that we talked about in the book briefly. We don't go into great detail, but this concept of followership that not every man on the expedition aspired to be a leader. 
and that in the most part, and, and I don't believe that Frank Wilde ever aspired to be a leader. He, these were people who aspired in a sense to just be on the expedition, experience the, the thrill and the adventure of, of being in Antarctica, being setting foot on land that no one else had, had ever set foot on, that they were there for the, for the glory or the personal interest or just being first to the South Pole, or they were just, just there because it was just a thrilling place to be. But at the same time, uh, they were not there, there was you didn't have this this pull that oh, everyone needs to move up in the organization, everyone needs to like, we need to be worrying about someone's career progression, it was like just being there for the thrill of it was was enough. And I think that sense of, of acknowledging that some people are not seeking senior positions, they're just they just want to be fulfilled in the position they're doing. And that was very clear on, on in these expeditions. I think that helped a lot. Well, that's 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 good, and I think you're right. It is we have such an emphasis now on up or out, and or sort of climbing to the top. Uh, you need people who are working well at all the positions where they are, and if they can find that fulfillment in the positions where they are, you can have a really harmonious and highly productive team. Um, that's really good insights. Now. Another area I want to touch on is ethics, because you know a number of the the more dramatic stories in the book are are you know logistical, they're tactical, there or there's you know a strategic decision to be made. Yet there's also some really interesting ethical dilemmas. Um, you know, do you do you leave someone behind to, for the survival of more of the people? Do you how do you allocate? resources and, and when there's not enough to go around those kinds of things um and i i find in the people i work with that fewer and fewer people have any formal training in ethics it isn't part of the standard curricula anymore at uh at any level of, of school as far as i can tell unless you go study philosophy and ethics um the people that you know i work with have a great sense of right or wrong they, 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 but they to our Articulated into a broader framework to say how would you how would you go about making a decision in this situation? How would you figure out what is the right thing to do? Um, it can be challenging. So you know, as you talk to people, how do you counsel decision makers? How, how to think through the ethical aspects based on what you've learned from all these historical figures you studied? Okay, well, let's. Uh, that's a, a great question. There's a lot to unpack in this whole whole area which is, it, it may be good to start with a, a story from the book, which is the way the book opens, actually. We, we op open the book with this incredible story of these three men on the ice, and they've gone out 750 miles. They've walked, they've, they've been uh, pulling sledges. They, they, before they were using dogs and ponies, but all the dogs and ponies have died, and they're pulling sledges are called manhauling. So it's, it's um, the sledges were typically designed to be pulled so one enormous sledge filled with tents, sleeping bags, supplies, food, everything they needed. And, and just to put this in context, you can't even eat the snow to, for, for water. You have to bring with you on the sledges this fuel that is used for heating, for cooking, and for melting snow for water. Because if you put cold snow in your, or snow into your mouth, you can get a very small amount of water, but you also can lower your core body temperature to a point where, where it can be lethal. So th these sledges were designed for four men. 
uh, in this case, what happened was it was uh, four men going out, three men coming back. It's, it's a long story as to why there were only three coming back, but the other guy didn't die. He was going on. But the, um, so there's three, three men. They've been out, gone out 750 miles, manhauling on the way back, and they come to a situation where they're about uh, 200 miles, 100 miles to go, and they realize that one of the men, one of the three has scurvy. Is coming down scurvy. The scurvy is very clear. What's when someone has scurvy, their their gums black and their their joints ache, their skin discolors. I mean, there are a lot of telltale signs that everybody would have known at that time, and uh, and it's fatal. Uh, it will slowly debilitate a human being to the point of of death. And so they realize that this guy's just going to get weaker and weaker and weaker. And and they're making slow mileage again, pulling the sledge, and now. It gets to the point where they're down to two men and this one other man is is being on the sledge because he can no longer has the strength to walk. So two men pulling what is a fundamentally a four-man sledge and they get to a stage where where the man who's dying says, just leave me behind in my sleeping bag. They only have one tent. So no one's going to survive without a tent in Antarctica. And, and so he says, just leave me behind in my sleeping bag and you guys go on. We're running out of food, running out of fuel, running out of everything that we've got. Uh, and we're all going to die. And at the, and it gets to this point where he says, they say no, and he says that he's the, their commanding officer, which in, in this fact, this case, it happened to be three military men, and he wasn't, in fact, uh, a more senior military man. He could give them a military order. And he said, it's a military order, you know, disobey his mutiny. And this is the dilemma. Do they leave him behind, which is what he's, demanded of them actually, or do they stay with them or what do they do? And it's this compelling, complex ethical question. And that's the way the book starts. Um, so I can, should I continue? And tell and, the well, I think, yeah, because I, I know how the story ends, which we don't, maybe we don't want to do a total spoiler alert here, but as you looked at the, at the research, could you get it, could you get a, a sense of how the, they contemplated this decision. I mean, obviously, the, the the person who had scurvy, who, you know, I think probably had a pretty pretty good thought chance. Wait, he, like, he pretty pretty good idea of what scurvy meant and how it diminished his potential chances of survival. And so he was taking what was a, one could see as a selfless decision. Um, it also puts a burden on the others if they do leave him behind. Um, they're going to have to live with that decision, and it, and it won't come down to just we were following an order. Um, so, did you get any sense of how? I'm sure they didn't have a big long debate uh, over this, uh, but did you get any sense of how they were thinking and how they processed the, the the choice points? They, they, the approach they took was a quite simple one, which had to do with. So, like we said, we aren't going to spoil the story for for everyone because there's a it's a, one of the most remarkable stories, but it it. At that moment, their decision was, we're the masters of our fate today. So this, they couldn't predict the future. They couldn't predict whether he'll live or die, but they could predict that what we do today, we can, we can influence you know, the next 24 hours in a sense. And that was, that was what drove their decision-making was, was what can we do in the short term, not knowing what the future is. And, and I think that, um, 
was quite good. When, when you talk about how do you train people in, in these ethics, well, my co-author and I are actually cur currently discussing the ideas for a, th a third book. And so building on our first two and, and, and the dealing exactly with this issue of, of how do you, it's not so much that you can teach people the ethics, it's more about how do you help people think about all these various situations that they could be in so they can pre-understand their mindset because some of this has to do with religion and some of this has to do with upbringing and some of that has to do with morals and some of this has to do with things they learned from their parents and and societal norms and in this case things that had to do with the king and the queen uh because these this was a british um expedition so you've had all, lots of different different dynamics that happen with people and so it's how do you train them and, and i have done workshops where we've given this exact story and said to a team uh broke people into teams and and, and said specifically how would you solve this and what was interesting was we gave them five minutes to solve it because you're not gonna have they didn't have long to solve it they couldn't sit there and right. say well let's let's run computer models and see how long someone lives with scurvy it was making this decision quickly but and but getting a group of people to agree and it's actually exceedingly difficult to get people because everyone comes at it from a different uh different background and and a lot of it does come back to one's upbringing of Americans may view it differently than British people may do it different than Australians or Canadians or Europeans. And you also may view it differently, whether you're uh, whichever religion you, you come at it from. Uh, There's just there's just complex things, but that that's our next book. So maybe I can come back <laughs> once we've written that, maybe I'll come back to your show. And we can there we go. That. Yeah, we'll come back and have a good, good, deep ethical, ethical conversation mm -hmm. about that. But that's good. I, Masters are our fate. Here's what we can decide. Here's our basically our sphere, our sphere of knowledge and our sphere of control, and we're going to do the best we can do within that. Which is, you know, again, you've taken a, what it sounds like they did was take a really complex decision, and make it simple enough that they could make the decision and move forward. Um, because you're right, if they all went off to contemplate for three hours, they'd be dead. Um, so they couldn't yeah. wait that long. Yeah, I think that now, that that idea of of making a decision quickly. And making a decision that was like, okay, we can't say what's going to happen four days from now, but we can say what's going to happen in the next few hours, the next few three, four, ten hours, whatever period you want to think of. And so, okay, let's make the let's make a simpler decision now, and we can always reverse it. You know, if you don't leave them behind now, we could always leave them behind ten Later. hours from now. <laughs> exactly, right. uh, and that was sort of their that helped drive their their thinking. But the story, no, I, the story does has lots of twists and turns and and so just for for people listening to, to to us talking about this is is it's it's not quite a simple survival story it is literally there's so many twists and turns to what happens next uh it is it is uh, uh a great story to learn about and yes think, and, 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 and the, the notion of repeal and i've written about this when writing about sort of how do you make high stakes decisions one of the factors that comes into how quickly you can make the, a decision is can it be repealed or not can you revisit it easily uh, and as you say in this case if they don't leave the person behind now and it an, an hour later they need to they can revisit it and do it if you do leave him behind you actually can't revisit that one because to go back and get the person if you change your mind might kill everybody uh, and so, re so realizing where's that the possibility to retract and the more easily something can be retracted and, re and revisited the faster you can make the initial decision 
Um, so it's an important thing for leaders to keep in mind. Now, you've studied a lot, lots of leaders, Shackleton, Roosevelt, Brunel. You know, if your own life was on the line, which one of them would you want to be making the decision about what to do and why? Well, there's, there's, there's a wonderful saying about uh, that one of the explorers, uh, one of the, the, the more junior men on, on one of the expeditions said was that, um, and I can't remember the exact phrase, but it's something like if you want, um, uh, ex, you know, if you want, want to travel uh, efficiently and get to something like the South Pole, you go with Amundsen. If you want scientific studies and, and deep understanding of, of the way nature works and, and you want Captain Scott, but if all else fails, you get down on your knees and pray for Shackleton. And <laughs> so it's, it's, I mean, it was said much more eloquently than that, but it was, it, it, uh, so yeah, if I was in Antarctica and I was in dire situations, I would want Shackleton. He had four basic premises or his concept of, of, of the qualities a leader needs. And these four things were optimism, patience, idealism, and courage. And these, and, and in that order, actually. And he was an exceedingly optimistic person, but he knew that there were times, like after their ship got crushed in the ice, and they're just living on fundamentally an ice flow, basically a very large iceberg, uh, that they, uh, it just took patience. There was nothing they could do. They couldn't launch the lifeboats. As you know, like if you put ice in your freezer, like if you have an ice maker in your, in your freezer, and all the ice cubes, when they touch each other, they sort of freeze together. Well, if you can envision icebergs, when icebergs collide and touch each other, they freeze together. And you can get an ice flow literally the size of, you know, uh, Luxembourg or something. It's, you know, you, get, you can, so they could be on an ice flow that's just is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so they had no, nothing they could do other than be patient because eventually if you're on ice, and you're in the southern hemisphere will eventually float north uh, and into warmer water and break up. So it was just patience and being idealistic and having courage is like those were his traits. And yeah, I would want Shackleton definitely. Okay, so. that's good. Now, one last question, a variation of one I ask all of my guests. You've studied people who were in a lot of seemingly hopeless situations. So, you know, you've seen how they generated hope what what gives you hope as you look forward to the future so i'm the it, it's interesting because because um even though i live in in london i read the washington post quite a lot and comment on washington post articles and as many people do which is great great fun and someone had written this this comment that i was responding to that was that this this real doom and gloom you know like uh comment about the future as the thinking of that's one way to look at the future is that between the pandemic and the politics and all the other things going on that, that it, you know, and, that, and whether politics or UK politics or British or US politics or whatever's going on in the world, you can definitely look at it in a very negative way. But I see something different. I see that the world has pop, is popular. There are a lot of smart and very talented people and that the problems that we face in a way, the world looked very dark during the, the worst periods of World War One. The world looked very dark during the Depression. The world looked very dark during World War Two, and uh, even during the Cold War. That you think 
the problems seemed insurmountable, but they weren't. And the same with, uh, with t today's times, with climate change and with disasters and with all of that. They seem sort of insurmountable, but they probably aren't. And one of the big lessons that comes out of our second book, which is about called Audacious Goals, Remarkable Results, how an explorer, an engineer, and a statesman shaped our modern world, is that one of the end products of that book is that you had these three incredible people Amundsen was the explorer, Brunel was the engineer, and Theodore Roosevelt was a statesman, was that it was these three uh, professions, in a way, coming together. If you want to solve big problems, it wasn't that these three people lived at the same time or even worked together or did anything together, but that when looking at the world, if you looked at the world from the point of view of an explorer, an engineer, and a statesman, at all at the same time, that that gives you a, a a way to look at problems. So whether you're looking at climate change, you're looking at disaster relief, you're looking at different things that the those trace the way an explorer looks at things, looking at everything that's gone before, but trying to break new paths, or an engineer looking at how do you do things systematically, or a statesman looking at how do you build political will to do something, that when you bring all that together, those traits become uh a recipe for for making success and i think the one thing our era misses and that the one thing that existed in the early 1900s and whether you love theodore roosevelt or hate theodore roosevelt and there are many things that when researching what he our focus was on strictly on the panama canal and the national parks and i know he didn't create the national park service but he set up the legislation to protect land uh, from developers, and he protected a phenomenal amount of land. He protected as much land as exists in the original 13 states of the United States. And that those the, those 13 original states, the amount of land they occupy today is as much land as Theodore Roosevelt protected during his entire presidency in eight years. It was just a remarkable set of legislation. And But what he had that we don't have today and like I said, you can love him, you can hate him, but you 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 got to respect his ability to speak and to his oratory skills. His speeches were just unforgettable, and he has so many great phrases about glorious triumphs and dare mighty things, and and talking about the man in the arena. Like now we should talk about the person in the arena, but the idea that it's not the critics who count; it is literally the person who's in there trying to get things done. And I think that what gives me hope is this concept that we can all dare mighty things. We can all think about the future and strive for a better future. And just that simple phrase, we can call the book Dare Mighty Things because there's another book called that, but it was uh, that concept that that we all we, need, all we need is we need an engineer, explorer, and a statesman to come together or those talents to come together and you need someone to be able to speak eloquently like that and in, 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 in an inspirational way. So that's that's a long answer to, to your question. Well, that's a, it's a really good answer and a fitting answer to conclude our conversation. Brad Bork and I wanna thank you so much for joining us on Leader ReadyCast. The, uh, the two books that Brad and his co-author David Herzl have out there right now are When Your Life Depends On It, Extreme Decision-Making Lessons from the Antarctic, and audacious goals, remarkable results, how an explorer, an engineer, and a statesman shaped our modern world. There's more to come from Brad and David. 
You can look for those as well. But for now, always be ready to lead. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next episode. This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts and find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.